Rachel, uh, Rachel Held Evans is a pretty famous blogger. She's a millennial, member of the millennial generation. She blogs on matters of faith. Um, one of her blog posts got picked up by the Washington Post. It was, it was uh, put there two days ago where I saw it. Sort of just fell into my lap. What luck. Um, the name of the blog post was What Millennial Want, Want Millennials Back in the Pews Stop Trying to Make Church Cool. And I think that what she had to say definitely is going to resonate with a lot of you here today and with almost everybody who's not here today. She says, when I left church at age 29, full of doubt and disillusionment, I wasn't looking for a better produced Christianity. I was looking for a truer Christianity. I was looking for a more authentic Christianity. I didn't like how gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people were being treated by my evangelical faith community. I had questions about science and faith, biblical interpretation and theology. I felt lonely in my doubts. And contrary to popular belief, the fog machines and the light, uh, and the light shows at these slick evangelical conferences didn't make things any better for me. They made the whole endeavor feel shallow, forced, and fake. In her blog post, she goes further to cite the research that we're using for this series called, you know, what is our name of our series? <laughs> you lost me at, right? So she cites, the exact, she cites that research. She says, according to the Barna Group, among young people who don't go to church, 87% say they see Christians as judgmental, and 85% see them as hypocritical. In stark contrast to that, a similar study found that only 8% say they don't attend church because it's out of date. Putting those things together absolutely undercuts the notion that all churches need to do for millennials is to make worship cooler. People are fleeing. They have, they have fled. They're gone. They have fled the church like Major League Baseball fans flee the home stadium at the top of the ninth when their team is down by eight runs. They want to get home early, have one more beer before they go to bed, and forget about it. That's what has happened. And as the stakes are huge. I don't think that in the 15 plus years I've had the opportunity to pour out my heart here, sometimes very ineffectively, but always with a lot of passion, that I, I, I've been asked to teach something so urgent and so important as I'm going to do today. Because Evans isn't talking about why those other people have left. She's talking about why... I'm going to leave and why you're going to leave in five years or 10 years or 15 years. I am astounded at my age now, thoroughly middle age, headed for something even worse at 55. How many of my friends have left church because it is completely irrelevant? It doesn't resonate. 
and they're tired of the hypocrisy, and they're tired of the judgmentalists as well. We hate hypocrisy. We hate being hypocrites. We hate being judged, and we hate judging unrightly. The elephant in the room, let's just put it out there, is that people are not leaving church because they have a problem with Jesus Christ. They have a problem with the lack of authenticity in us. I mean, I, I mean to make you uncomfortable. Like today will be a success if you feel like someone stabbed you with a dagger for, you know, and, and you laughed a little bit while it happened. That would be a great day. I mean to make you uncomfortable. So this journey of discomfort is going to take three stages, and it's going to become more uncomfortable, at least to the first two, and then there'll be some belief in the, some, in the third. The first step in this journey uh, towards authenticity is to look at the extent of and the cost of our hypocrisy in this day. And the second step will be to look at how God historically in his communities delivered his inauthentic and judgment, judgmental people and see if there's a pattern there for us. And then the third step will be to look at a tool. I want to teach a tool that I think can transform our lives, can change our conversations with each other, can deliver us out of sin, stuff that's been binding us, very crunchy, very practical stuff. And maybe in the process, liberate you and make you liberators. So that's where we're headed. The first is this. What is the extent and the cost of Christian hypocrisy in this day? Well over a decade ago, a guy named Ron Sider, one of my personal heroes, and a founder of Evangelicals for Social Action wrote this, these words. Scandalous behavior is rapidly destroying American Christianity. By their daily activity, most Christians commit treason. With their mouths, they claim that Jesus is Lord, but with their actions, they demonstrate allegiance to money and sex and self-fulfillment. When comparing Christian lives to non-Christian lives, there's virtually no difference in divorce rates, charitable giving, use of pornography, premarital sexual behavior, rates of STD among teens, and marital infidelity. And Christians, excuse me, and evangelicals are twice as likely as Catholics to object to having black neighbors. And white conservative Protestants are more than twice as likely as other whites to blame lack of equality between blacks and whites on a lack of black motivation rather than on discrimination. Conservative Protestants are six times more likely to cite lack of motivation than unequal access to education. This week, I blew up my face page, my Facebook page. I don't know what I was thinking. I simply posted about how I was personally grieved and angry that about every three weeks, the news is full of a story about a black man who has died while in the hands of law enforcement, only to find a video or some piece of evidence that tells us that the system that we trust 
is full of injustice. I posted that, and my more conservative Christian friends began to post about how black-on-black crime and homicide was the real tragedy. Yeah, they they completely hijacked my page. Now, I just left the conversation up there, so you can go have a look at it if you want, if you're one of my friends. But it's there. That's what we're talking about. That's an example of it. Very uncomfortable. Maybe it's going to get worse. Uh, Laman Sana, who is uh, an African Christian professor, someone I believe who served alongside uh, Nelson Mandela in, uh, in South Africa. No, no, that's fine. He's a Gambian, so that's not right. Let me go back. Laman Sana, African Christian professor. i got to get my African Christian professor straight. Um, he was a convert from Islam, and he wrote these words almost 20 years ago. This guy's a prophet. The cultural captivity of Christianity in the West is nearly complete, and with their religion tamed, it is open season on the West's Christian heritage. I worry about the West without a moral center facing a politically resurgent Islam. Is Islam the great rival and challenger of Christianity? Or is the rival and challenger of Jesus the criminal under my own hat? Are you ready to pull the log out of your own eye? Or let someone help you do it? You know, if, if, if you go to lunch and, and you get a piece of broccoli cut in your teeth, caught in your teeth, you're just hoping that before you go to the restaurant, your friend will have the courage to tell you, hey, you got some broccoli. And I hope I have a friend that, if I can't fish it out myself, that they're the kind of friend that'll be like, I'll take it out for you. Because <laughs> I don't want to be the kind of guy that wanders around with broccoli stuck in my teeth. When, when someone's got like something like that going on, I mean, you can't see anything else about them. You can't hear anything they're saying. All you see is broccoli stuck in their teeth. We, we've some broccoli stuck in our teeth. How has God delivered the people he loves, his judgmental people in the past? He has always forced them into conditions, narrowed them into places where they must focus and pay attention first to their internal integrity and not their external danger. The Apostle Paul, when faced with really a nearly identical situation in the church in Corinth, Greece, addressed it by writing a letter, and this is a little aside here, but this, I, I want to normalize what we're experiencing here. Just read any of Paul letter, Paul's letters in the New Testament to, some, to those really high-functioning churches, and, and they're all we're dealing at some level with hypocrisy and, and moral failure. So he gives us a way through this, and he writes to the church in Corinth, his first letter, he wrote these words, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, Not at all meaning people of this world who are immoral or 
the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not a judge of those inside? God will judge those outside, expel the wicked person from among you. Hard words. But they synchronize with the Old Testament prophets' teaching and with Jesus' own teaching. It was the prophets who said, judgment begins in the house of God. It was Jesus who said to a rich man, it is harder for you to be saved than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It would be easy. I plucked out six sentences or five sentences out of one letter to, to, to get confused here and think that this is the whole of Paul's teaching about hypocrisy. But it would be weird. Because more or less, if you walked away now, what you would hear would be, just take your judgmentalness of other people and just transfer it onto each other. And that would be great. That will work fine. If, if you put this into the greater, more expansive teaching we find in Scripture, what we find is exhibited, I think, very well in Jesus' own life. Jesus is the sort of guy who when someone comes to him, a rich ruler comes to him and says, hey, how do I inherit eternal life? He says, go and sell everything you have. He does not say, ask me to come and live in your heart. But that is what we've told people. And it's weird. Like, He's just going to get really small, and I'm going to swallow him, and somehow he's going to get in my heart. And I'll be honest, I don't want to ask him, how will I inherit eternal life? Because he might answer me, and he might answer you. Go sell everything you own and give it to the poor. That doesn't play well in middle-class America. But I'm also knowledgeable about Jesus enough to know that from the cross, as he was dying and he was suffering, he also gave great challenge. In his moment of challenge, excuse me, in his moment of great challenge, he offered amazing support for us. He looked at those below him, we can count ourselves in that group, and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And so, I think to bring those two things together, if we're to love people well, and love each other well, and if we're to stop being hypocrites, we need to love in a way that combines support with challenge. Romans 12.9 has it this way. Love, love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. And love that is without hypocrisy is not an either-or kind of love. It's a love that's able to challenge what is evil, and it's a love that's able to support what is good. 
at the same time. So I want to take this third step, which is to show you a tool, to show you a way that could create conversations that will normalize where you find yourself in your life, struggles that you have with sin, maybe the condemnation that you meet out at people from time to time, to normalize that and get free from that, right? So here's, here's what it is. We're going to put it up on the slide up here on the wall. I got this from, some, uh, a from the founder of a company called Giant Worldwide. They do leadership development. They're doing amazing things. I think this is going to be in a book he's getting ready to publish, and he let me steal it. Um, it's so on the y-axis is support. Low is on the bottom and high is at the top. And on the x-axis, the horizontal axis, is challenge. Low on the left and right on the support. In Corinth, and I think in our culture today, this is, I think, particularly true in pluralistic cultures, we have a tendency to support in high ways, very, very high ways, and not challenge very much. But let's fill it out so you can see how this thing works. On the bottom left-hand side are abdicators. We become abdicators when we don't support people well, and we don't challenge them either. Right? And, and you've probably been in some relationships with people that abdicated and didn't love you well. And what that creates in you is apathy towards the relationship and very low expectations for the relationships, right? You come home from work and you're tired and you plop down on the couch and you start flipping. You know, and the kids are coming in or you've got your phone and you're kind of watching TV and you're giving them the Heisman kind of thing, keeping away. You are an abdicator. You are abdicating from people's lives. Over on the far right-hand side in the bottom are dominators. This is when we're full of challenge, but we're low on support. Well, yeah, we, we can find the, 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 the speck of dust that's in somebody's eye, and we can tell them how to fix it, but we don't ever really encourage them. We don't ever really support them. And dominators ultimately create communities, cultures of fear, and manipulation. Look at my Facebook feed. It's full of it. And then there are folks that get, a, in our culture, more or less get a buy in life. And I'll just say it right now. They are no, in no more healthy than dominators, but it's on this upper left-hand side. And these are protectors. People who support very high, in very high ways, but they never challenge. They never they never tell you, Brian, broccoli, dude, you want me to get that out for you? Come here. They, they never tell you about the broccoli in your teeth. But they tell you they love you. They tell you you're a great guy. What kind of friend is that? They, they build cultures of entitlement and distrust. Because if he, when Brian finds out later that he had broccoli in his teeth and I saw it and I let him just go out, he's going to blame me. It obviously wasn't his fault that the broccoli, you know, was stuck there. And ultimately, there's the upper right-hand side, liberators. Paul wrote in Galatians that it was for freedom that Christ set you free. Liberators, people who support high and they challenge high. What's your natural lean? Are you the sort of person that supports endlessly but never really talks to 
the friends in this room about the hollow places, the dark places, the flaky places, the sketchy places in their life, then don't lower your support for people, but absolutely increase your challenge. Or, or maybe, you know, and that's me. Okay, that's me. I'm a, I'm, I'm a big supporter guy. My wife, Kathy, challenger, right? So very much can see the details, can see where things aren't working, and is more than happy to tell you how that's working out for you or how it's going to work out for you. We need to have challengers in our lives, and we need to be challengers. We need to get more challenged. But if that's your dominant, if that's your lean, then learn to support people more. The idea is not to dial back. The idea is to go further, to drive, if you imagine an arrow going up into the upper right-hand side, become these great liberators. This is the tool. And I want to give you a practical example, and then I want a story, and I want to give you a real example, a real-world example. The giant guys tell the story, I think it's true, actually, about a guy um, who was uh, at, his son, at his son's fifth-grade baseball uh, game, and uh, a foul ball was hit, and the uh, ball goes up over the catcher's head and hits, like, right here next to the kid. And the kid's kind of wandering around. He doesn't know what to do, right? And when the ball hits, his coach comes out of the, out of the uh, dugout, and he says, Hey, Tommy, get your head out! And he goes back to the dugout. And, of course, everybody on the opponent's team is like, Oh, glad that's not my kid's coach. Um, ooh, um, dominator. Does Tommy need to get his head out? Yeah, it would be nice. He might catch the ball if he did. But he doesn't know what to do. So he's right. He's challenging Tommy, but that's all Tommy's getting is a challenge. And then the next inning, guess what happens? Another foul ball. Goes up in the air and comes down right on the ground behind the catcher. So now it's the other coach's moment. He comes out. Hey, Teddy. Teddy, you got this. Here's what I want you to do. When the ball is flipped up in the air, like fouled up in a ball like that, take the mask off, look up, pivot right and left, put your mid here, ball's going to be right there. You got this. Good job. Goes back to the, the dugout. High support. Hey, Teddy, you got this. Here's what you do. High challenge. Tells him exactly what it's going to work. Cues him. Mask off. Lots of great cues. Mask off. Mitt down. Pivot right and left. Look up. Ball's going to be there. Okay? That's an example of what support and challenge look like when they come together. That is not hypocritical. That is love in the full. That's love in the full. People, will, people are dying to see that in our lives, but that's not what they're seeing. We have this wonderful opportunity to give that to each other, to tempt people with that. So here's, how I know, here's why I know this will work. Uh, through no good effort of my own, I fell in with a group of guys over the last year or two here at Warehouse that we call our men's meetup. Very fancy name. And in our men's meetup, this combination of support and challenge is happening. And it is remarkable. I, I, I am stunned by what is happening there. Um, I feel loved. In Warehouse like I never have because of that group of guys. And, and I won't tell you that it's easy because we think that the men's meetup should be a little bit like Fight Club. So on the first night you come to our group, you have to fight. Like the first night you come to Fight Club, you got to fight. So we play a thing called uh, Rookie Roulette. We, we're nice guys. So if you come visit our group, now, now none of you will ever want to come visit. Um, if you ever come visit, the deal is uh, the members of the group 
will ask you any question they want. It'll be seven words long, no more than seven words long, because we know that if we ask a seven-word question, you'll give a 35-word answer, but if we ask a really lousy 20-word question, you'll give a lousy 100-word answer. So we ask a seven-word tough question, and then we just laugh as you try to answer it. And then when they, you finish answering it, the member answers the question themselves. So we demonstrate what it is we're expecting from each other in terms of support and challenge. And here, I've sanitized these enough that they can't be uh, tied to any one person. Um, some of those guys are here. Um, but here are the kind of questions you might get asked in Ricky Roulette. Um, so, how did you waste your time yesterday that you don't want to tell anybody about? That, that's a great question in the men's group. Um, how about this one? Uh, who should you be an advocate for, but you've been an advocator instead? Or how about this one? Um, I like this one. What scares you, S-less, about the guy sitting next to you? How about this one? If, um, if, we, if you don't come back next week, and we bring your wife in here, and we put her in your chair, and we ask her, do you feel love? Is she going to tell us you love her? We didn't think so. Now, that's challenging. That is exactly what I need. Because in a group like that, somebody can say, pornography. And someone else will say, me too. People that are liberators have this sense of making everybody in the world feel like the liberator is for them. Because you're challenged by them and because your support is so fully by them. This works. It works because it breeds confession. And when we're together, two or more of us, and we confess our sins to each other, the Spirit of God is present. We get grace. And as long as we're not talking about the elephant in the room and we're not talking about the things that are going on in our life that are just frankly treason, we're, we're going to be slaves to them. Confession is the antidote, I'm sure of it, of hypocrisy. This is a huge, huge opportunity. We could get slicker bands. It's hard to imagine that, but it could probably happen. We could get better speakers. I, I don't think uh, any church in Charlotte that I know of is looking to differentiate themselves on authenticity, on the quality of how they challenge and they support each other. The, I want to make you uncomfortable, and so I just I want to make you I want to give you some practical ways that will not make you feel comfortable until you think you might actually do them and then they'll scare you to death. The first one is this. This matrix, write it down and go teach it to somebody in the next 24 hours because you are going to forget this. 
in 24 hours if you don't teach it to somebody in 24 hours. And after you've shown it to them, ask them two questions. The first one is, how good of a friend am I? Do you feel like I'm supporting you too much? Do you feel like I'm dominating you, challenging you too much? How could I be more of a liberator? So get that feedback for yourself. And the second question is this. What do you think I need more of from you? Do I need more challenge from you? Or do I need more support from you? Jesus went everywhere having conversations. And it was the main mode of transformation in the lives of the people that he met. He absolutely set people free. It's, it's, it cannot be lost on those that call Jesus their Lord that their great liberator considered his neighbors in this world so highly, so esteemed, and so valuable that he chose not to pull himself away from them but rather to die in solidarity as a criminal between the two of them. He did not die between two saints. Our opportunity, walking out here, is not to identify ourselves with Jesus, but to identify ourselves as one of the sinners on the cross next to him. Maybe on one side there's a man who's more religious, like you and like me, and Jesus was glad to die in solidarity with us. And in the end, I think that if we do that well for each other, then the whole world will join us. Because the whole world is waiting for us to die in solidarity and to stop judgment. Let's pray. Spirit, make us authentic. Teach us to love will support and challenge for others. What we have craved, where we have craved evil, bring hatred for it, and cause us to cling to what is good with all of our strength. Amen. Heavy. Oh, thank you for letting me say those things. I really, I really trust that this is a kind of community like almost no other I know where we can talk about the elephants, that that is a great thing. And that we're on a great path if we do that. And I know, I know we're doing that. So let's talk about the elephants. We're going to take an offering. Another one of those elephants. You were created to love. You have no idea the capacity you have to give love. Love that will change your life. Love that will change the world incarnate the love of Jesus who loved God, his father who loved his neighbor who hated evil and who clung to what is good go with him Amen